I've lost a lot of friends since I've turned There's been a lot of bitches that I've burned There's been some lessons I learned But through it all I stand firm I'll lose it all in the swirl just to make it to you I'll lose it all in the swirl just to make it to you I may not ever have a drop talk May never have a rollie, it's my watch May never have a billboard top spot I lose everything that I got I'll lose it all in the swirl just to make it to you I'll lose it all in the swirl just to make it to you if you enjoyed that intro song, it's called Lose It All by Bryson Gray featuring Tyson James. They're both two up-and-coming, talented, Christian, conservative hip-hop artists. They seem like they're always charting well, whether it's album or songs, on YouTube, Amazon, iTunes. And that's dealing with censorship for their message. They're independent artists, so you know you're always getting the truth. Again, they're really talented artists. I can't recommend them enough. Uh, go check them out. Bryson Gray and Tyson James. What is up everybody? Thank you again for joining me on this journey. So today is going to be the last episode. I, uh, I know I talked about how this probably be two more, um, but really it, it's a lot of information, but I think we can condense it into this one episode. We're going to briefly talk about religion, communism's war on religion, and then just finish up with what exactly has been the plan and how they've been executing the plan in the United States here. And so we're going to get into some heavy stuff. I'm going to leave you with a little hope at the end, so please stay with it through the entire episode. I think this is one of the most important episodes you can listen to. Um, we're probably going to run over. It's going to be the longest one, but please bear with me on it. I think it's a fascinating one, and I, I can't wait for you guys to, to join. Now, as always, before we jump into it, there is one more thing I want to say. I want to give you my sources. So today we're heavy, heavy, heavy back into The Devil and Karl Marx by Paul Kengor. We're going to talk a little bit through Glenn Martin's um, prevailing worldviews. I also um, dabble some in Mark Levin's American Marxism. And then there's an article I was um, presented with in college. I thought it was fascinating. It really, I think, defines best the state of cultural Marxism, which we'll talk about in this episode. So a lot of the outline comes directly from that. So those are the sources. Um, again, if you guys want to do further resource, uh, research into it. I'm only scratching the surface of what these resources talk about, so please pick it up, read it. They're fascinating reads if you're interested in it. Um, but yeah, that's where we're, um, where we're going today. That's what we're, uh, the sources we're going off of. So let's jump into it. As I mentioned, I do want to touch on communism's war with religion, and that's really what it is. It is a war on religion. Um, we'll talk about Karl Marx real briefly. I'll share a quote because, I mean, I think we get the picture from even those first two podcasts I I did that Karl Marx was um, he was definitely uh, anti God he was atheistic um, like I said there could be an argument to be made that he dabbled in some satanic stuff if nothing else he was definitely obsessed with the the darkness that it brought he's been quoted to say that religion is the opium of the masses and um, and remember. One thing that he, he looked for communism to do, he wanted to radically rupture traditional relations. Um, one of those traditional relations, obviously, is family. The other is religion. I mean, that's where a lot of people get their value and their worth is from is from religion. So and he wanted to, uh, to rupture that. And again, he called it the opium of the masses. Vladimir Lenin would quote him saying it was the opium of the masses. He would compare it to booze. Um, he would also say, Vladimir Lenin, that is, was saying everyone must be absolutely free to be an atheist, where, which every socialist is as of a rule. He also went on to say that complete separation of church and state is what the socialist proletariat demands of the modern state and the modern church. Lenin once stated that 
in order to combat the religious fog, we founded our association, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, precisely for such a struggle against every religious bamboozling of the workers. He'd later say he wanted to halt the religious humbugging of mankind. I think this is a, a really fascinating, it's a, a, a longer quote, but I mean, it really you know, tells a lot. And again, this is Vladimir Lenin, the guy really took what Marx said and put it into practice. It is the absolute duty of social democrats to make a public statement of their attitude towards religion. Social democracy bases its whole world outlook on scientific socialism, Marxism. The philosophical basis of Marxism, as Marx and Engels repeatedly declared, is dialectic materialism, a materialism which is absolute, absolutely atheistic and positively hostile to all religion. Marxism has regarded all modern religions and churches and each and every religious organization as instruments of the burgessy, so of the rich, um, reaction that serve to defend exploitation and to befuddle the working class. We must, and I am skipping ahead on this quote, but we must now know how to combat religion. Even Mikhail Gorbachev would um, call what the, the Soviets were pursuing was a wholesale war on religion. I mean, you can look at how they treated the popes, how they were always at, at war with them. You know, we talked about Hitler's pope and how they gave that false name. Here in America, the founder of the, um, well, the founder of the Communist Party USA was William Z. Foster. And, I mean, he talked about, you know, overthrowing capitalism and liquidating the family values. Um, well, his successor, Earl Browder, was um, noted as saying, Communist Party is the enemy of religion. We communists try to do the opposite we hold religion does. Earl also is noted as saying, we communists do not distinguish between good and bad religions because we think they are, are all bad for the masses. And I'm not for sure who this quote was from. Um, again, this does come from the, you know, the devil and Karl Marx. It was obviously a, a communist or someone familiar with it. But it, he says, it is necessary to link the fight against church and religion with the fight against capitalism and imperialism. So not only is it, it is an enemy, you know, we know how they feel about capitalism. And they're linking the fight with church and religion as on equal footing with that. And then finally, one more quote um, that's a professor, Cordless Lamont from Columbia University, and he was, I mean, he was admittedly a, a supporter of Trotsky and Lenin. He was quoted as saying, the unaltering determination of the communists to do away with religion and the inclusion of this aim is one of the chief features of the educational system from one end of the country to the other. And he's talking about America. It's Columbia University is right here in our backyard. So he's talking about the United States, that our educational system is, it, its chief goal here is, is to do away with religion. And so and, and again, and guys, there's so many examples I could give and go on and on. I just want to give you a basis of quotes. If, if you read The Devil and Karl Marx, there is a section there, and it talks about how a lot of ministers, how they were treated in these prison camps. And, it, I mean, it, it, it's so sick and twisted. I can't think of anything more demonic. I mean, they would use religious relics like crosses and, and, and things like that, and they would use it in such sick and demonic ways. And, and I won't, I'll spare the details, but, I mean, these people were— so anti-religion, they were, I would argue, they were, they were fueled by hatred of it. And I think more than anything, more than capitalism itself, I think they hated religion. They hated Christ. They hated the freedom that came with Christ. They hated the, the lack of control they could have that comes with uh, religion and faith in Christ. Because a faith in Christ is a freeing religion. It gives you individual responsibility. It gives you an um, individual calling, and you're responsible and held ultimately by God. And that gives you a lot of freedom. And they couldn't stand it. They despised it, and there was that hatred that grew. And um, like I said, you can hear it in these quotes, but you can definitely, if, if you ever read 
that. And, and there's another book, and I can't think of the name of it for the life of me, but it's a, um, a pastor, and it's his testimony of being in jail and the way he was treated. And it's utterly disgusting, and, but it, it really gives you a big picture of what communism is truly about. Now, I know we've talked about this before, um, but I think it's important just to briefly kind of summarize so we can kind of understand what's taking place in the United States. So we've talked about before, obviously, this has been about Marxism, communism, but there's also that element of socialism. Um, so it, you kind of need to know the difference because they can get intermixed because they've both been working against the United States. If you remember, the socialists and the communists, they believe in the same results. Um, socialism, uh, or in this term, the Fabian socialist, they view that you know you can you can achieve those means by peaceful um, playing within the system. You know, at the ballot box, changing, doing things through the media peacefully like that. Whereas the communists know their force and, and bloodshed, and we've talked about this over and over. Uh, the socialists believe that they could get the communists along on their you know they could transition them to become socialists that they were well intended. Um, people, they were just a little misguided, but we can bring them along. Whereas the communists saw them as useful idiots, that they um, they would use them to help achieve their goals, but then they would ultimately be destroyed like everyone else. And so that kind of, I paint that picture again so that you can understand that uh, these two forces that are working against the United States. Um, so the, the socialists, they came to power in Europe from, I think, 1900 to maybe 1930. And then the 1930s is where they really came to dominate, dominate here in the United States. So they took over, you know, our academics, so colleges, campuses, you know, professors. They took over our media. They um, got involved in our churches, um, the labor unions. Uh, they even got involved in our politics. So from the courts, um, from the lower levels on up, all the different bureaucracies we see, and um, even into our executive branch and our legislative. So they've come to infiltrate them. They originally came here in the United States 1900s through what they called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society. Now, that didn't work very well because, I mean, let's face it, Americans at that time, they didn't want socialism. They were free, and they wanted to stay free. So about 20 years later, they kind of shuffled the deck again and, and came out with the name Industrial Democracy, or League for Industrial Democracy. Um, so that's a different, uh, you know, that's a different take. That's not, we're not socialists. We're just for democracy. Who could possibly um, be against that? And so the people that would, you know, be a part of these leagues later on would take over all of our um, our major workforces here in the United States, and they would take over the. Quite fr frankly, they'd take over the Democrat Party in the 1930s. From that, you'd get the um, Committee for Industrial Organization. They also formed what's called the Americans for Democratic Action, um, and and there they would train. It was an, it was based at academics and they would train them for the purpose of socialism and help pushing the Democrat Party farther along to the left to the socialist agenda. And finally in the 1960s they came up with the Students for Democratic Society and this is out of this you would have a, a separate um, group branch off from them which would be the underground weathermen. So if you hear about those you know terrorist activities from bombings that they had back then from uh, the weathermen this is where they came from. And so it's important to understand the reason I bring this up, because we are talking about communism, but it truly, if you look at the length of this time, the Fabian socialists, they were the ones that truly had the impact more than the Marxist-Leninists. Now, that's not to say, and we're going to get into exactly how the Mar Marxists were involved and how they particularly they aided the socialists, but it was the socialists here in the United States that, that have really done the most damage and have caused us to get to where we are today. 
Um, because if you think about it, you know, by the time 1917 rolled around in Russia, I mean, the the socialists had been around for over 20 years. And so they had been working here hand in hand. And um, and yeah, so the Marxists, the, the communists, they come along and ate it, but it was the Fabians that set the groundwork. Now, with this being said, we're, obviously this podcast is about communism, and so we're going to focus on that. And they definitely had an impact here. Don't get it twisted. Um, just because the socialists laid the groundwork. I mean, they laid it for the communists, and, and they definitely had a role in that. And so in 1922, you know, Russia and the Soviet Union realized, okay, we can't overpower the United States militarily. They're just too strong. So they incorporated what they called the United Front Policy. And in that, the the kind of the goals of that was, number one, and, and the key, this is probably the key of all, is to promote Soviet sentiment. So wherever they can, through propaganda, um, through taking over institutions, they're going to, you know, they're going to provide that pro-Soviet sentiment here in the United States. Number two, they were going to build and support communist and trade unions, and help to create um, environment that was kind of right for the picking, which we've talked about before, where communists could come con- to control. The third thing, they spread communist propaganda. They would do it, and they would incite. In the way they did this, they would be spreading their information here this is the truth this is what we're trying you know this is our goal but at the same time they would do that by inciting um, separation between Americans in any way possible so that's from religion race and economics now keep in mind this is an economic approach but they would use other elements to to reach this economic approach and by doing it this way they could you know they could pursue communist goals without having the communist label attached to it because it obviously would not have been a popular label at that time certainly and so, and by also doing this, it allowed you know the Americans as a whole, the greater public, to be a part of this. And you can see this in their writings. Um, the number one main target for the groups that they were reaching was liberal dupes. That's what they referred to them. Um, and in fact, Herbert Romiston, who was an ex-communist, he claimed that the the communists really eyed the religious left. So not just the left, but the religious left. He, they referred to them as the biggest suckers of them all. So that kind of lays the groundwork on, um, oh, one more point I wanted to to state on that. Um, If you look at through the end of the Cold War, the two biggest countries being subsidized by Russia or the Soviets was France and the USA. So that tells you how important overtaking and overthrowing the United States was. So we've kind of laid the groundwork. Now let's get into some of the details. We're going to hit it off real quick first on their, how they infiltrated religious institutions. And um, again, they hated religion. We've talked about that but they definitely saw a way that they could use religion um, to attain their goals. We now have documented evidence that the communists used and duped the progressive religious left, particularly the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, and the Methodists, on issues such as you know social justice, income issues, equality, gender issues, different things that we know of today that they used and manipulated them. They also created the American Peace Mobilization in the 1940s um, with the sole purpose of it is to get the progressive left, the, um, the pastors mainly of the religious left, to help you know, influence our policy on terms of World War II. So initially they wanted to stay out of it, and that's because Hitler and Stalin had that non-aggression pact. But when he violated it, they changed their position, and magically the, the left dupes, they changed their opinion as well. And again, we have declassified proof of this, that the Soviets did this. I mentioned Earl Browder earlier. Well, he was speaking at 
Union Theological Seminary, which that and the Princeton Theological Seminary was a breeding ground for communists, by the way. But anyway, he was speaking there, and he told uh, he told the students that the Communist Party was up to 31,000 members in the United States, with 14,000 being new members within just a year and a half. And that was back in 1935, so that's uh, astounding numbers. There was a report in 1937 of the communists that they held key parts of uh, Catholic organization, like roles in the Catholic organizations, such as the Holy Name Society, which was the men's group, the Sacred Heart Society, which was the women's group, the Archdiocese Union, and they had a uh, Catholic newspaper called Wisdom, which they controlled the editing and writing. And um, and so you can see that their effort wasn't just on the, you know, the um, Protestants, but also the Catholics. And now I will say that you could, if you were, um, if you were a communist, you could be involved in religious organizations, and, and or if you were not, I'm sorry, if you were not a communist and you were actually a religious person, you could be a part of the communist movement. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. But you couldn't take on leadership roles um, because the ultimate goal, as we've talked about, they wanted to liquidate and get rid of the religious belief. So you could be a part of it because they could keep an eye on you and can control the narrative, but you just couldn't have leadership roles. Ben Gitlow was a man who was a communist member for many years, but he turned away from, from the Communist Party and actually testified before Congress and gave a lot of you know valuable information. One of the things he talked about was that the common turn officials that actually had listed a Reverend Harry Ward, who really is an evil man. I mean, if you read it, he was another one of the co-founders of the Communist Party USA. He had a huge influence in the United States, uh, was a big source of getting their literature, the communist literature, into seminaries here in America. Um, through his Methodist Federation for Social Action Group. He also, uh, his work with Society for Technical Aid to Russia um, was a front that allowed him to issue passports and visas for different spies and, and terrorists from, from Russia and the Communist Party to come into the United States. Gitlow also states that as of August 20th, 1935, um, that was the official date that the Communist Party, the CPSU USA, so Communist Party of USA, that they adopted the infiltration of religion as their major platform and, and what they're pursuing. He quoted the exact resolution from Moscow as the establishment of a united front with social democratic and reformist organization and with the bulk of their members as well as mass liberation, religious, democratic, and pacifist organizations and their adherence is decisive in the struggle against war and its fascist instigators in all countries. Now granted he, that was when they made the official policy but He'll even tell you that, you know, this was going on long before they officially declared that. Gitlow also went on to testify that the Methodist Federation for Social Action boasted between two to 10,000 members on any given year. Now, what's kind of frightening about that is he said that this is a rather small estimate, as he personally knew of much larger communist fronts that were out there, um, that they would use, you know, they would use socialists, they would use other leftists, progressives, pacifists, liberals, religious leaders, whoever, on any issue that they may be in agreement with, and the communists would use them. Even if they were completely against everything else the communists stood for, if they had one issue in common, that they would use them. And again, they referred to these dupes, these communist ministers or, or these religious dupes or, or um, leaders in that. One thing I didn't say earlier is that Reverend Harry um, Ward I was telling you about, he was also a leader of the ACLU. So that tells you anything about the ACLU, and, and, and there's a lot that can be said about that, especially in its foundation, but um, Reverend uh, Ward was definitely an influencer and a leader in that movement. And when he was asked, this is Gitlow I'm talking about, when he was asked to 
during the hearing, you know, how many would you say in the Methodist Church would serve willingly or unwillingly for communism? And he said it would take several hundred pages of testimony. Gitlow also would write, this wasn't during the uh, testimony, but he would write in his life that the common term that they would pay the, com, um, the CP USA, which is the Communist Party USA, 100 to 150,000 per year. They would also give 35,000 to start up the Daily Worker, which was a communist front. And they gave tens of thousands of dollars to union bosses all across the United States. Another ex-communist that would testify before Congress was Manning Johnson. He was ahead of the NNC, which the purpose of that was to organize black Americans into a separate, segregated um, black republic in the South, and they would take their orders directly from Moscow. He informed Congress that communists were demanded that they get rid of any type of religious, what they called superstition. Now, he secretly held on to his, and which is ultimately the reason why he would abandon communism, is because his religious values just didn't align with it, and he recognized that they were where Christianity was a religion of love, that this was the epitome of a religion of hate. He also stated that the communists, they sold and gave away thousands upon thousands of anti-religion literature throughout the U.S. He gave an example of just how loyal even some of these religious leaders were to the Communist Party of a Bishop Montgomery Brown. When he passed away, he left his estate to the Communist Party. So not his family or the church or his community, but no, to the Communist Party. And this uh, bishop would also with the, the help and funding from Russia, would write many, many children's books here in the United States. He also recognized that the communists in 1932, that they changed their direction and their approach from being anti-religious to looking like they were, um, you know, embracing Christians, but really just trying to infiltrate them only so that they could get involved and then wither away from the inside. They used these communist fronts to provide training grounds for revolutionary activity to eventually overthrow the government. He stated that the communists actually paid for and introduced different surveys to religious groups just to help understand better ways that they can get involved in, in, in what concerns that these religious people had in the United States so that they could um, infiltrate them, take them over, and use them for communist uh, grounds. In referring to Reverend Ward as the Red Dean of the Communist Party in the religious field, he noted that religious colleges and seminaries and other institutions were breeding grounds for atheism and communism and in which is ironic because you're you're purposely going to the students are going to these schools to learn about religion but they were so keen and, and manipulative that they could take the atheistic and communist doctrine and, and present it as if it was a religious you know as, as this was religious teaching but it wasn't the whole purpose was overthrowing the United States government and he even said that the communists had little local to state to national levels of different groups and committees and different uh, districts that were focused on how they could deceive religious groups and religious people and didn't want to offend anybody or seem like they were at odds, but that they, you know, that this was a meticulous and deceitful effort that they could, you know, falsely influence the religious and particularly the religious left here in the United States. And he would talk about a lot of these front groups, which the number one, you know, goal in these front groups for, you know, churches, ministers, and, and other religious groups was the American League Against War and Fascism. That was their number one target. They targeted the church left and right. And um, obviously they had more, much more of an influence on the left, but that didn't stop them from even those on, on the right. They wanted to influence and infiltrate any and everyone they could. 
he stated that, you know, his labor group alone had 10,000 members, but only 60 to 7 were actual communist members who controlled it. And out of these, you know, 60 or 70, he said they would, they would um, indoctrinate and, and spun out into a society thousands of clergymen and others to help the Marxist cause. So even though the number of communists themselves were low, they were just spitting these people out left and right for, um, from the seminaries and churches. And they were taking them away from, you know, the spiritual and bringing them to the material focus. And the communists, you know, they grasped the idea that just one professor of divinity teaching communism to future pastors and clergy that will turn around and preach to thousands of churchgoers is way more effective than having 20 communist preachers just preaching from their pulpits. So they were smart. You know, they, that's why they attacked education. He said that even communists would have to provide and go over sermons with these ministers. They would have to look at them and they would edit the sermons so that they would make sure and meet the communist requirement. He claimed that the Communist Party had um, contacts with at least a thousand plus ministers who were, um, if nothing else, sympathetic to their cause. Kind of the communist philosophy, according to him, on you know these front groups is if they can just have one percent infiltration of actual Communist Party members, and then just have another nine percent of sympathizers, they can con take control, and you know they can control the mass, the ninety percent that's left for their causes. Bella Todd, she's another former communist that would see the light and come to Christ, which, by the way, is an amazing story. If you ever have time to, to read that account, it was with the help of Priest Fulton Sheen, but just an amazing account. But she had said that Alexander Trottenberg once said that when communism came to America, it would come under the label of progressive democracy, a label that he said acceptable to the American people. He would also claim another time that America would not be taken under the title of communism, but of socialism, liberalism, progressivism, and or democracy. But take it, we will. Now, if that's not chilling, think about it. I mean, you can't turn on the news without hearing the word democracy thrown around a million times, or progressives, or we're progressives. And, and here you're seeing the roots of it, and, and the infiltration communists, like again, these liberal dupes, these progressive dupes. And they, they were, that's, how con that's how confident these communists were. But take it, we will. Todd also said that communists would use every means possible, including education in America, all the way from nurseries to universities. And she would often quote what Lenin said, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown shall never be uprooted. Again, this is chilling stuff. I mean, we, we are seeing the harvest and the fruits of what was planted many, many years ago. She claims that she alone helped to recruit a thousand communist men within the Catholic seminaries. She also said that no, she knew of no fewer than four Vatican cardinals that were communists that she were, was in contact with. In 1938, she claimed that the communists were bragging that they had 10,000 members in the teachers' union, and by 1941, it was up to one-fourth of all teachers' union members were communist. And New York was home to the majority of a lot of these American communists I mean, that's where you had the headquarters of the Communist Party USA. You had groups such as the Daily Worker, New Masses, and there are many others. Columbia University, some of these seminaries. There were 30,000 members just in New York City alone. And I, th I thought this was astonishing. But the FBI had over 1,100 communists that were placed on these little security index cards. And what that meant, if for some reason there were war was to break out, that these were possible government spies or collaborators with, you know, the Communist Party and that they could essentially be arrested. And they had over 1,100. I mean, 
that, like I said, this is no small feat. This is, and these are just the ones we know of. Who knows how many, you know, were hidden underground we didn't know about. If, if there were that many, you could imagine there are many, many more. Now, if you do not take anything else from this particular podcast away, please listen to what I'm going to say here. Because this, I mean, this really ties it all together. Everything has been kind of a buildup to this. You know, we've talked about what communism is, who the founder was, what they believe. But it's like, okay, how did it really take root in the United States? We kind of see that, but this really explains it. And it kind of explains why it's hard to define who are true socialists, who are true communists, because it gets intermixed. And so I kind of briefly touched on it earlier, but at the end of, um, like, I think 1917, 1918, communists realized, man, we're not going to beat them militarily. How do we possibly defeat the United States? What do we do? So these questions came up. Well, there were two in particular that kind of answered this question and, and kind of set this new trajectory. There was Antonio Gramsci and there was a George Lucas. Now, Antonio Gramsci had basically said, you know, the communists made the mistake thinking we're going to have this revolution and then we're going to overtake the government. Then we're going to overtake this and that and, and have the country. But it starts with this revolution. He said, no, 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 no. We're going to do the long march through the institutions. So that's the schools, the, you know, your churches, your workforce, your media, um, culture, all these things. And so that was his focus. Well, then George Lucas was another huge influencer, and he probably was more influential than Gromsky himself. But he came up with his main focus was introducing sex education into schools. It started in Hungary schools, um, but realized, you know, this is ultimately for the United States because he knew and he understood that if you destroyed the country's traditional sexual morals, that you have a huge giant step in taking over its culture and defeating Christianity once and for all. And while initially for Gromsky and even George Lucas, they had to flee where they were living because, I mean, these people were not up for it. They didn't agree with what he's saying. Eventually, uh, Lucas would find a young Marxist by the name of Felix Wheel, and Wheel just happened to have these millions that he had inherited. And so they worked together, and Wheel would actually respond to this. He, he loved what he was teaching. He believed in this, and so he set up a university called Frankfurt University in Frankfurt, Germany. And it was initially called Institute for Marxism, um, but they quickly realized, man, if we're just going to come out and say what they are, what we are, we're not going to get any traction. So they kind of concealed it, and they called it the Institute for Social Research. I mean, who could be against research for social? I mean, probably for society. It sounds like it's betterment for the society. And so, I mean, it would soon become known as the Frankfurt School. And this is the place where political correctness, as the United States knows it today, where it was developed. And this has really had the, one of the biggest influences on what's taking place today. Now, at first, this institute worked on just your traditional labor issues, you know, that Marx had talked about. But in 1930, that's when it took that big shift. And so it was taken over by another young Marxist named Max Horkenheimer. And again, I'm, I say this all the time, but I probably am butchering the name, so don't quote me on that. But Max Horkenheimer, he had been influenced by George Lukacs, and uh, he, he started working at Frankfurt School to, to teach how you change and subvert culture and bring what they called cultural Marxism. And that's where this term, so Marxism, communism, it was economics, based on economics. They said, no, that's not the approach. It's not working. We have to take and morally decay a society culturally and take it. Um, from there, they had a young graduate student named Herbert Marcuse. And, I mean, he is instrumental in what's taking place in our academics today. 
and we won't necessarily get into a whole lot of Marcuse, but I mean, like I said, he is, I mean, he had a huge influence on academics in the 50s and 60s and where we are today. And I mean, and he's a huge, huge reason for that. But anyway, going back to Horkheimer, he had made three advances in this idea of cultural Marxism. First, like I said, he broke with the view that, um, Marx's view, that, you know, culture was just a byproduct of society. Once you deter, you know, once you take the economic factor, that's the true driving force. Once you take that culture, we'll find, we'll, we'll, you know, fall, follow suit. Well, Horkheimer said, no, that's not the case. Culture was its own independent variant, and it was the number one factor in shaping society. The second uh, point, he announced that in the future, the working class you know, wouldn't be the agent of the revolution. And he didn't quite answer that. He left that open for interpretation, but Marcuse would answer that, and, and we'll get to that. And then the third, and I think one of the most key developments that Horkheimer had, was he mixed Marx and Sigmund Freud. So he argued that just as workers, you know, they, under capitalism, they had been oppressed, that, you know, people were living in this psychological repression. And so we had to liberate one from the psychological repression in order to um, to achieve the ultimate goal of cultural Marxism. So what that meant is that psychology became way more important than philosophy in destroying. So they would start what they would they would start to teach in what they would call psychological conditioning, and that is absolutely what goes on in our country today. From media, commercials, Hollywood. I mean, absolutely. And this is where it got its roots here. It, it's the idea that. You know, um, like I said, the TV, if there's something that they want you, the agenda they want to push, they'll put it on TV. They won't even have to, you know, teach it. They will teach it in schools, but in, as a byproduct of it, for some of the older generations, they'll just start putting it more and more on TV, more and more. And over time, it just becomes normal. It, they just normalize it. That's exactly what psychological conditioning is, and that's what they practiced. So then you had World War II, um, you know, Nazis and, and Hitler come to power in Germany. Well... Nazis were at odds with Marxism. They hated it. So this Frankfurt School of Germany, they kind of, and their members kind of had to pack up, and they reestablished themselves in, of all places, Columbia University here in New York City. So, you know, they from over the pond, they were trying to destroy our country, and now they were here within it. Um, the Frankfurt School here, they came up with several different um, tools to destroy the United States, one of them being critical theory which might sound familiar in today's world as you hear critical race theory. Um, simply put, the idea of critical theory, the theory was to criticize. So they took every traditional institution from family to faith to you know your local communities and they just criticized it. They, you didn't even have to have an answer. The point wasn't to have an answer solution. The point was to bring it down and to destroy it. Remember what Marx said, you know, everything had to be destroyed. Um, well, this is part of that. And it was... Interesting to note, I know um, Paul Kingor in his book actually talks about how critical theory, not only does it have its roots in Marxism, but also paganism, magic, and occultism. And uh, so it's very atheistic, pagan, and possibly demonic. And so Herbert Marcuse, which we talked about, he was one of the biggest proposers of critical theory. He wrote about it in his book, and he thought it was the necessary warfare to, to reach the masses. Another area that they, they did, they wanted to tie traditional beliefs on sexual morals, relations between men and women, and questions touching the family to support for fascism. So basically what, what they did 
is they took those traditional beliefs and they said if you still held on to those you were a fascist you were part of the problem and so that allowed them to create any and every new norm that we would you know those that grew up in in the society and our our you know christian values would say whoa whoa that's wrong that's a sin well they're saying no 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 no. you're wrong you're a fascist we're right we're just free and um yeah tell me that's not in our culture today the other um another big factor is domination um that they they took over so what what they they stated was history wasn't just determined by the economics you know this and that they they defined history um, being controlled by groups such as men, women, race, religions, I mean any and every group, and that's today ever-expanding. So one group has dominance over the others. Um, one of the biggest groups that they, they brought to light was the white males, the oppressors, and the rest were victims. And so it's interesting. You have all these different groups that come up, well, you know, they're oppressed and they're oppressed, but it's always the same oppressor. It's the white supremacists or the white nationals. Also kind of find it interesting that um, the Frankfurt School had wrote that it didn't matter for American education if the students actually got any skills or facts. The whole purpose was, and their main goal was when they graduated, that they had the right attitudes on certain societal questions. The other element they took over, which had a big, big effect, was the media and entertainment. Um, initially, the Frankfurt School didn't think it was relative to it. They didn't think it was necessary, so they kind of ignored it. But a close friend of Horkheimer named Walter Benjamin, he argued that no, 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 no. Culture of Marxism could have a powerful friend in radio, movies, film, you know, to help psychologically condition. And so eventually they would take root there. And it's no accident that the, you know, Hollywood is like it is today. Uh, Horkheimer and his friend Adorno, they would spend many of the years in Hollywood during World War II to help set up and establish what Hollywood is today. Now, remember, I said earlier that Horkheimer had posed the question, what was going to replace the working class as the new um, agent of this revolution? As I said, Marcuse would answer that, and he answered it with, it would be a coalition of students, blacks, feminists, homosexuals, so like the, these core groups. Um, I'm not talking the average, you know, the average black person, the average homosexual. I'm talking about these radical groups, that they would be the coalition of them. They would be that core student group in the 1960s. They would call them the sacred victim groups and would use them for political correctness. He would turn tolerance on its head, and this is in his words back in the 1960s. He defined liberating tolerance as tolerance for all ideas and movements coming from the left and intolerance for all ideas and movements coming from the other side. And just to give you an idea of the foundation of Black Lives Matter that's kind of taken root and came to the forefront of our society the last few years, um, one of the uh, co-founders, Patrice Cullors, has said, the first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Myself and Alicia Garza, which is her co-founder, in particular, are trained organizers. We are trained Marxist. And if you dig into Patrice's uh, past, she had trained for decades as an organizer. Uh, for a group that was established and ran by Eric Mann, who's a former member of the Weather Underground, which was that domestic terrorist group back in 1969, and it was deemed domestic terrorist by the FBI, which back in the day the Weathermen in their opening statement claimed that their, their sole purpose was the destruction of U.S. imperialism and the achievement of a classless world, world communism. Also interesting to note, Susan Rosenberg, she was a member of the May 19th Communist Organization, or better known as M19. 
She has a long, you know, violent criminal um, background. She was, I mean, she, she was part of revolutions. She actually served 16 years of a 58-year sentence for, uh, for some of her radical criminal behavior, but she was pardoned by Bill Clinton. So anyway, she's the vice chair of the board of directors for Thousand Currents. They are the ones up until, I think, 2020, mid-2020, they were doing a lot of the grant-making for Black Lives Matter. Oh, and one other thing about Rosenberg, she was actually sought after for aiding the escape of Joanne, I think it's Chesmard, who was a communist uh, that escaped prison and now lives in Cuba. And then one other thing on Black Lives Matter, originally, and it's been taken off since, but you can still find it, I'm sure, on the internet, but online it stated that some of their goals were, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, requirements for supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to disagree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So there you have it. They wanted to abolish the nuclear family. Now, how on earth does that help black lives? That would be my question. Now, I want to contrast that to a true civil rights icon. It was actually Martin Luther King Jr.'s chief of staff, Dr. Wyatt T. Walker. He was actually the one that got all the paperwork together and compiled it of his of Dr. King's letters from a Birmingham jail. And he was with them on the I Have a Dream speech march um, back in D.C. at the time. Well, he rejects critical race theory. And he actually co-authored essays, and, and this is portion from his essays. Today, too many remedies such as critical race theory, the increasingly fashionable post-Marxist, post-modernist approach that analyzes society as an institutional group power structure rather than a spiritual or one-to-one -one human level, are taking us in the wrong direction. Separating even elementary school children into explicit racial groups and emphasizing differences instead of similarities. The answer is to go deeper than race, deeper than wealth, deeper than ethnic identity, deeper than gender. To teach ourselves to comprehend each person, not as a symbol of a group, but of a unique and special individual with a common context of shared humanity. To go to that fundamental place where we are all simply mortal creatures, seeking to create order, beauty, family, and connection to the world on its own. Seems to bend too often towards randomness and entropy. So yeah, there, I mean, right there, that, that, I think that's spoken beautifully. I mean, he understands. He, and again, he was part of the civil rights. He knows what real racism is. He knows what oppression looks like. And I mean, he's against this critical race theory because he understands the origins. He understands what it does. It seeks to destroy, not to build, not to create, not to solve problems, but it seeks to destroy. This is Marx, this Marxism 101. And finally, to wrap up on this topic of Marxism, communism, I just want to briefly touch on again Marx's summary. Uh, we talked about it in one other podcast, but just really hear it after what you've heard from this podcast, what you see in the world and society, and, and just see, tell me if this isn't exactly what's taking place and where we're at. He wanted to radically rupture traditional relations. Check. Abolish the present state of things. I think they're doing that's they're doing a, a darn good job of trying to do that right now, that's for sure. Our ends can only be attained by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. So that's been watered down some, but in some ways, I mean you're seeing force and violence out in the street. Communists everywhere should support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. Again, it goes back to the supporting of one another between socialists, liberals, doesn't matter. They're gonna support it for the cause. A ruthless criticism of all that exists. 
that to me sounds like a great definition of critical race theory and, and a lot of these things we hear. I mean, that, that's what they're doing. They're criticizing everything that we know to be foundational and to exist. Uh, religion is the opium of the masses. We've talked about that. And then finally, Marx's favorite quote from, uh, from I think, I believe it's a poem, Faust. Um, but anyway, the quote goes, everything that exists deserves to perish. Uh, that's to a T what is taking place today. No one has answers on how to build or solve for problems that they're saying, oh, there's a problem with this, you know, or a problem with that. Well, they're telling we just need to destroy and tear down. There's no solution to build something up in its place. And I, I think that just fits perfect. Everything that exists deserves to perish. That was Marx's philosophy. That's what he believed. And I would dare say Karl Marx would be ecstatic and utterly proud of what's taking place. I don't know if he could have dreamed this in his wildest dreams. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for going on this journey with me. Um, we've covered a lot of material and really a lot of dark stuff. And so I just kind of want to leave you with some hope uh, because we do have hope. We have hope in Jesus. And, um, you know, when, when people talk about the end times, and I'm not going to get into whether I think it is or isn't, but regardless, when they talk about the end times, they talk about these perilous times when evil, it just seems like runs rampant on the earth. And it's, it's almost we get this impression that God's people are just helpless and God is losing the battle until he comes back and saves everybody, and saves all of his people. I don't believe that's what your Bible teaches. Um, I believe that, I don't believe the, um, I've heard Todd White, who is a, he's a ministry started lifestyle Christianity and uh, this university down in Texas, he's awesome, awesome guy, and um, he's a street evangelist is what he is. But um, he, I heard him say once, you know, that the rapture is not a rescue mission. It's a pickup date for a bride that's made herself ready for the wedding date. And so I don't think the church looks anywhere ready right now. Um, and so I think there's a lot of pruning and a lot of the church has to elevate to her highest moment, I believe. And so I think that... The end times is, is a time when, look, I mean, Jesus is clear that the, the miracles and stuff he did, we're going to do greater things than he did through the, his authority and through his Holy Spirit. And so I believe it's time for the church to rise, to take their stance. I believe communism, socialism, all the isms will be defeated. I, don't, I personally don't believe this is where the um, Antichrist comes out of. I think it's like a rehearsal, but I think the church will win. And, and if you notice in Hebrews, um, it's very fascinating because in Hebrews 10, Jesus is talking about how he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. So he's going to remain in heaven until his enemy is made a footstool. So to me, that's, the church is going to be on a very victorious note at that point. So be encouraged. We have victory. Satan's got no authority. All he has is lies. And we're starting to see through his lies. And so everything I've told you about the evil, we need to know what it is. We need to know what communism is and what it stands for. But we know we have victory. Jesus has already defeated that. So go out with boldness. Tell the truth. Share this with people. Um, let them know what's truth. And, and go out and, and pray with people and just spread the faith. And let's build a community because we know we're victorious. So I hope this encourages you guys. You take care. And thank you again for joining me.